Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. In every episode, we remind you, well, Doug reminds you, that if you like the podcast, you could rate it and review it on Apple Podcasts. And unfortunately, there aren't a lot of other places to rate and review. I don't even know if Spotify allows that. We're available on Spotify, on the Google Play Store. So rate and review everywhere. But I have to confess, I don't often read the reviews. At the very beginning, we were checking, we were seeing how many five stars we got, and, and the reviews were all positive. And a few weeks ago, so we're recording this on the 3rd of July. It's going to go in the can, and we don't know when we're going to publish it, but we just wanted to record it. A couple weeks ago, I went to Apple Podcasts, and I was looking at the reviews, and I don't know if Sadie Captain is still a listener, but I found some of the comments that this person made, uh, him or her, I'm not sure, starts out congratulating us on the quality of the audio voices. Congratulations, Doug. You have a great audio voice. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. The listener was impressed by the apparent diverse musical interests of the host. That's me and you. Thank you. But the longer I listened, Sadie Captain says, I became genuinely suspicious that you're talking with enthusiasm about pop music. And, for example, the music of John Cage is a cheap marketing ploy. Cheap marketing ploy. Not just a marketing ploy, but a cheap marketing ploy. An attempt, perhaps, to be, open quote, the Renaissance men of music, close quote, open parenthesis, and books, philosophy, equipment, format, style, etc., question mark. I'm just not buying this. This is not, I think, authentic. Now, the funny thing is, the, the evening before I read this review, I had finally found a letter that John Cage had written me in 1988 that I had lost among a bunch of papers, and I actually would, had been hoping to find it to scan it and send it to the John Cage Trust, where they collect all of his letters. And I, I, I'm, I've been rethinking about this comment. Is the cheap marketing ploy the bit about talking about John Cage or the bit about talking about pop music? That's what I was confused on. If it's about talking about John Cage... I don't know if the listener's aware, but John Cage's popularity is actually quite small. So as a marketing ploy, I don't know who we'd be appealing to. Yeah, it's, he's just an interesting person as far as I'm concerned. I think I'm genu- I have genuine curiosity about, you know, what's the, what's the deal with John Cage? Yeah, Wh- why is he a thing? Now, was his criticism directed at our posing as pop music fans? Well, I used to work in radio, and I used to play classic rock formats, and I used to do all that stuff. Kirk actually used to listen to the radio. <laughs> so he is familiar with lots and lots of pop and music. Pop, pop, let's, let's consider pop as the very broad range of popular because yes. rock and pop and, and, and even some kinds of jazz and punk and all that. I mean, this was my, you know, this is what I listened to mostly when I was a teenager and in my sure. early 20s. So we both have a very broad interest in music, which is one of the reasons why it brought us together. We not only were interested in the tech but we were also interested in, in a wide variety of different kinds of music, which I think that's what you wanted to talk about. Yeah, exactly. You wanted to talk about genres. I want to talk you about genres. Say, genres are fluid. We, and, um, yeah, we are not in, we, we're not tied into any guardrails. Right. But, uh, but maybe we're supposed to be? I, see, that's what I'm wondering. If people want to easily identify things, content, opinions, and we're we the Venn diagram of what we're interested in is just huge and messy 
I'm thinking back to our recent interview with harpsichordist Mahan Esfahani, where he was saying that contemporary musicians have trouble with him because while he plays music for harpsichord and electronics and some written even in the 21st century, it's still a harpsichord. That's an old instrument. And the early music clique doesn't like him because he's playing contemporary music. It's as if the only way you can legitimately play harpsichord is to play Bach and Bird and Purcell, etc. So there seems to be this apparent tension in genres like, why does it exist? So many people don't even pay attention to genre anymore. And I, and I would say, in particularly since the streaming era, genre is less and less important. You know, when you were doing radio, and then back in the 70s and the 80s, a little bit earlier, how many genres were there in the 70s? Well, I mean, I would think four. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what did we have? We had rock. We had pop, which was sort of AM. Soul was definitely a genre, which encompassed R&B and Motown? Well, I mean, I always think of it this way. Classical jazz, pop, and folk. That's pretty much everything. Okay. <laughs> okay. So for me, I was taking the pop and I was segmenting it a little bit more because that's what got most of the radio right. play, didn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, radio helped disintegrate genres into these... Um, Silos. Yeah. By splitting it up, by looking for a particular markets. Right. Radio but. dissected them because... Maybe because the listeners wanted to know that when they turned on the radio, they wouldn't find something they didn't like. Well, that's it. They yes. wouldn't necessarily find something they liked, but they wouldn't like, I'm thinking late 70s, that when you turned on WNEW, you knew you weren't going to get disco. Right. It's also, and I've mentioned this before too, a radio station tries to play the things that suck the least because they don't want to lose anybody. So they play music that is well-tested and and essentially fits in into these cookie-cutter sort of formats. And that helps splinter the rock genre into so many different things. Right, because even back in the day, we started getting album-oriented rock as a, as a radio genre. We had prog rock, we had jazz rock, we had southern rock, country rock. Sure. Yeah, it's a genre we forgot, country. That's another. That's actually a big genre that neither of us really pay attention to. Well, I put I put country under folk because that's where it descends from. To you know, to a most degree. Oh, you could put rock under fo under folk too because it descends from folk music too. But for the purposes of our discussion, I mean, I, here we are trying to like look at this. We're we're doing the same <laughs> thing. We're we're categorizing everything. And well, no, I think we're trying to catalog the categories that exist just as a, as, a, as a point of example. And I think what's great about music, so you can go through life and you can listen to the radio, you can listen to music as wallpaper, as we've mentioned many times, and in most cases you don't really care. But if you're the kind of person, again, Mahan Esfahani was talking about how he was one of the, the nerds in high school, you know, interested in classical music. And for me, it was like those rock family trees. You've, you've heard this band and this guy from this band went over there and you want to hear the other band. And you, you kind of get into this genealogy of, of different rock bands. Like I remember the prog rock bands, it kept reforming every three years with names that sounded like law firms. You would want to follow if there were specific musicians that you liked as they came out with a new band. Right. I was, I obsessed on uh, Rolling Stone magazine. That was my connection to all the music. And I got to the way I found out about different kinds of music because the radio wasn't playing it. But this was an interesting way to find out about how I first learned about punk music was in Rolling Stone. Yeah. Yeah. They weren't talking about it over here anywhere else. Yeah. So I learned about a lot of that from, well, from the press and from hanging out in record stores in New York. Because again, New York, you know, you were in 
you know, the boondocks in Providence, Rhode Island. <laughs> we have great record stores in Providence. Uh, it's me. not the same. It's not the same <laughs> as New York. Everything is in New York. Um, but you know, we used to go to New York to go get records. See, that's because you didn't yeah. have great record stores in Providence. Yeah. Well, we did, but they didn't. Have, yeah, we did. Have. But we also had a better concert scene. So sometimes you'd go see a particular band that you like, and there's another band that's opening for them. Or there's another band playing the next night at a small venue and you say, why not? Or you go hang out downtown and you drop into some club and, you know, you get music. Unlike Providence, Rhode Island, where everything shuts at 9 p.m. (laughs) (laughs) I've never been to Providence. You know, the only thing I know about Providence, there was a TV series for a few years. There were two brothers. One was was a district attorney and the other was a criminal just out of prison. That sound familiar? Maybe. I don't know. There was a show called Providence, but I never paid in touch. No, it wasn't called Providence. I'll I'll find the name and I'll put it in the show notes. Providence was a happening. Providence Providence was a very happening uh, music scene in the 70s. Very, very uh, uh, robust, just like Boston, but on a smaller scale. Well, to be fair, there is a King Crimson song named Providence. That's right. They performed it and conceived of it in Providence. That's pretty good. So, you know. But anyway, um, but, but anyway, the, as far as the genrefication goes, um, those are great examples of how you stay within the guardrails. Yeah. Uh, because you hear the same familiar stuff over and over again. Yeah. And I think people, uh, you know, it's like, what is it? What is it? There was a song, a great song, uh, Uniforms and Insignias. Um, when you're a teenager, you develop these uniforms and insignias about, you know, what group you belong to, what kind of music you listen to. Some people don't never leave that. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, it's really true. I mean, a lot of my college friends just stopped buying music after college. And Yeah. So hold on. I'll get back to that. But the uniform insignia for a lot of people in the States morphs into fandom for sports teams. Yeah. It's the same sort of thing, actually. It's almost like it's yeah. almost like politics, even. It's, a very, it's almost political. Yeah. The thing about people not buying music after college, I think Spotify did a survey a few years ago, and most people stop buying music when they have children. Yeah. It's because you don't have the headspace right. to look for new things. You just want what's familiar, what's comfortable. Quite frankly, one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast is because I became completely detached from um, the music and audio stuff that I used to follow all the time after my daughter was born. And that was 26 years yeah. ago. And, it's almost, yeah. and I woke up like Rip Van Winkle going, yikes. You mean you can have more <laughs> than one HDMI plug on the back of a, a receiver? <laughs> I mean, that's I was that's I was way out of uh, of touch. And that's one of the reasons that we wanted to do this, because I do have a curiosity about this stuff. I am a a music geek. I'm an audio geek. Yeah. Yeah. We we try to cover a lot of I was going to say the word genres and I don't want to say it anymore. We try to cover a lot of styles of music, but we've never had any jazz musicians. Neither of us like hip hop rap very much. So we've never had anyone from that style of music. It's true that we do choose a number of styles that interest us. I choose the classical music that I like. And, you know, in terms of, particularly with authors writing books, we've had books about Dylan the Grateful Dead. You know, it's it's a lot easier if you're interested in making a podcast about music. You need to know it's a lot easier to get authors who write about music and musicians to get the actual musicians. Yeah, We're still trying to get Brian Eno to come on the podcast. Brian, I know you listen to the podcast every now and then. We'd love to talk to you. Bob, Dylan out there, you know, if you're listening, he'll never do it. But The thing, um, and you know, it was funny when we first started doing this, the joke was that Kirk can't stop talking about Bob Dylan and the Grateful Dead. And I soon learned that, well, 
I have a passions that are parallel to the to his uh, obsession with Dylan and the Dead, and so I relate to that. That's why when we have people guests on, you know, six months ago, if you had told me, uh, if you would ask me who who name any great living piano player. I would not have known who Angela Hewitt was. Yeah. And now I'm completely enamored with her. Yeah. Um, That's how my head is just not in that space. Right. But I can appreciate that stuff. And my worldview is give me more. Yeah. There's got to be more new stuff. Give me some more new stuff. Yeah. And in fact, that must be an endorphin thing, right? (laughs) That's what it is. Discovery of new stuff. Yeah. I think we always want to have new because it's dopamine. I think we get a dopamine when we get something new that we like. Yeah. And- the the thing is, as you say, you're not in that world, and I have been in the classical music world for a long time, so I'm familiar with all these people, and there are so many of them, and you can go really deep and, and find tons of extraordinary musicians that aren't necessarily A-listers, that aren't on TV or whatever, you know. Everyone's heard of Yo-Yo Ma, if they know anything about classical music, but there are tons of great cellists, there are tons of great pianists, so, yeah, the the wonderful thing about music particularly in recent years, and and I hope we'll discuss this in the future, the economy of music streaming, it's made it really accessible for us as listeners, even while it's harming musicians. And there's a real tension in the marketplace that if musicians can't make enough money, they can't keep making music. And in particular, now under COVID, as I said, we're recording this on July 3rd, so we don't know what's going to happen by the time this uh, episode gets published. But well, that's right. The UK is doing something. Well, they're opening pubs tomorrow at 6 a.m. And they're opening, um, I believe, hotels, bed and breakfasts, uh, holiday cottages, etc. But they're not opening performance venues yet. So, you know, we've spoken to a number of people about the lack of ability to perform And in a recent episode with John Wyver, who's more of a theater person, but, uh, you know, particularly about theaters, music venues, they can't open. Uh, We don't know what's going to happen in a month or two. Uh, Just today, uh, a fairly large theater announced that it was shutting down. There's a pretty big theater in Manchester that's having serious difficulties. And, you know, if you're a regular listener, you know, I live next to Stratford-upon-Avon, and we have a big theater, and we don't know if it's going to survive. So... All of these performance issues, musicians can't perform today, so they can't make money, and they're not making money from streaming. But at the same time, it's, made, it's given listeners this extraordinary opportunity to expand horizons, to listen to new artists, composers, genres, styles, even though most don't, unfortunately. I think there's the same percentage of people uh, who are curious about, um, you know, the non-pedestrian listeners. Um, but I think also more people have access to more music now than they ever did. So it's not like they only had the three or four radio stations that they could pick up in their car. Now they can actually listen to, you know, wide varieties of music. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm so confused is because I think of music as occurring in eras. Yeah. And it's not that way anymore. Now it's just a huge, big palette uh, of tons of music that's available. Uh, so it's... It took me a long time to actually realize that. And I think what happens is when you get older and if you don't start understanding what the generation after you is doing, uh, you might get cranky. <laughs> so over the weekend, my son sent me an email saying that a an Irish punk group that he's become enamored with was doing a live stream from, what was it? It was from the Guinness Storehouse. So presumably in Dublin, there's some sort of performing venue near or on the site of the big Guinness Brewery, which is a fascinating site to visit. They're called the Murder Capital, 
And it's great stuff. My son loves this. It's Gang of Four. It's Cure. It's it's Killing Joke. It's and this is forty years after Gang of Four and Cure and Killing Joke. And that's another thing I find interesting that we've got these genres that have sort of ossified and that have a, a, a stream without a lot of innovation. There's there's young energy. There's interesting lyrics and melodies, but. It's not changed a lot in all that time. And it's the same if you look at rock, rock. I think general sort of poppy pop has changed a lot because of the electronics and the production techniques. You don't really get a lot of those singer-songwriters anymore. You know, one person with a guitar, right. Carol King, something like that. Well, they may end up in, in, in the country genre if that's what you want to do. If You know, that's, yeah. there is a place for that. It's just not in rock yeah. anymore. Yeah, because remember, that wasn't... That was number, those were number one selling artists. Carol King, Linda Ronstadt, Jackson Brown. These people were, you know, they were filling um, theaters back yeah. then. One of the things that um, I like that's happening now is this uh, recycling of older sounds. Uh, I've mentioned Greta Van Fleet in the past. They take, it's almost like they've sampled Led Zeppelin and just regurgitated a bunch of new Led Zeppelin songs. Some people don't like that. Some people, you know, I don't care. Um, it's just interesting product. And if you like that sound, then that's you don't have any prejudice about it being borrowed from Led Zeppelin, of all people who borrowed a lot of things also without paying for them. And at the same time, you've got these extraordinary tribute bands. Like there's this Rolling Stones tribute band that keeps touring every few years. They look exactly like the guys in the Rolling Stones. And they're still kicking ass. They're really old. These guys are really old. And they're still doing these songs from the 60s and 70s. I don't know how they managed to sound so much like the Rolling Stones. You know what that reminds me of? That That's kind of like in the theater, you've made a musical. It's popular. It's going to go for decades. It's going to tour around the world. It's going to play in New York and London and Paris. And, you know, it, it becomes it becomes a consumable. Like Hamilton. Yeah, well, Hamilton's a good example. But Hamilton's somewhat sui generis, isn't it? That, that There's never been anything that popular across the country. You know, I remember there were some popular things in Broadway back in, I saw Jesus Christ Superstar back in the 70s. But I don't think anything has had the popularity of Hamilton. I mean, Cats was a big deal. Les Miserables, Phantom of the Opera, these were all pretty big. But Hamilton is, is way above that. As we speak, is it today or tomorrow that it's premiering on the Disney Channel? It's tonight. I think it's tonight yeah. on Disney. And yeah. so you will have listened at some point in the future to our discussion with John Wyver, who produces the um, live performances that are filmed at the Royal Shakespeare Company. It's a technology that's relatively well well understood here in the in the UK, where there are plays that are broadcast to cinemas, and it's relatively new in the US. So people are going to see that. They're going to be quite amazed by the quality of the proximity of the, you know, you'd expect, oh, it's a film of a play or a musical. It's like two static cameras. It's not at all like that. You've got, you got cameras on booms. You've got cameras on tracks. You've got, you it's know, gonna be something. long shots, zoom shots, close-ups. Yeah, it's really going to, I'm, I don't want to see it. I have, I mean, I don't, I'm not anxious to see it. Yeah. At some point in the future, yeah. I'm sure I will see it. Um, I'm not yeah. a Hamilton guy. I just I don't like modern yeah. musicals like that. But um, yeah. I would like to see how they produce it and present For it. For the technology. Yeah. 
Well, a good example, and again, I mentioned this in the episode where we were talking with John Wyver, is the Springsteen on Broadway, and, and that's on a smaller scale, but this was a theatrical performance. It wasn't a concert, and it was filmed like a theatrical performance. It's just one, guys. You don't have, you know, cameras on booms moving around a lot, but you do have a good variety of shots. I just want to go back to this review and, and just toss out another comment. As one other reviewer suggested, it is absurd to negatively portray the skills of a composer like Rachmaninoff and at the same time wet your pants about some of that entertaining pop music that you do often mention. I just can't take you seriously any longer, finding it difficult to listen with any sense of belief or purpose. I don't like Rachmaninoff. I said in an episode, I don't like Rachmaninoff. I don't like Rachmaninoff. I mean, I don't like Brahms. I don't like Brahms. I really don't like Wagner. I've tried many times. I know a lot of people that don't like certain things, and I'm trying to think. I mean, if I said to you, I mean, there's a dude, I think, in your one of your sports ball teams, Tom Brady. If I said, I don't like Tom Brady, no one would say, oh, I'm not going to listen to you anymore. Well, them's fighting words here in New England, buddy. <laughs> um, I thought he, I thought he no, left Boston. I, I, I actually have known people who, um, who would feign, well, it is kind of like that. There's a, there's a. There's this guy talking about sports, speaking of sports, on the radio recently or, or within the year, past year or two, whatever. And he was saying, we can't lose to Buffalo. My friends in Buffalo will just never let me forget it. And I'm like, what? get some new friends, pal. <laughs> you know, it's like, what? Uh, I just don't understand that sort of thing. Where, and that's how sports fans are. It's like, if we yeah. lose, it's I'm the loser. Yeah, and, and I don't get that. And it's the same thing if someone insults, I, I hate Journey. It's like, whoa, buddy, wait, what's wrong with you? <laughs> I, you know, I'm just not a big Journey fan. I'm sorry. But, you know. It's yeah, the, but, so, so what gets me is the expectation of a classical composer who's considered to be one of the greats. If someone doesn't like that classical composer, then that person has absolutely no credibility. Yeah. It, it's like you you have to like everything that's on the list of approved composers. I mean, Rachmaninoff, he could turn a good tune. There's just too many notes for me. You know, to be honest with you, whenever I hear, think of Rachmaninoff, I think of Liberace. I just, it's this handfuls of keys and candelabras, and it's just, that's what I think. What it reminds me of is those late night commercials for all the great hits that came from the classics. <laughs> Full Moon and Empty Arms. Is yeah. that the one that came from one of the Rachmaninoff? Perhaps you'll remember these familiar melodies. <laughs> what was that called? It was one of those K-Tel late night offers. Um, it's called, I think we've mentioned it before. The guy who's doing it is an actor by the name of John Williams. Not, not John Williams, the composer or John Williams, the guitarist. No, not the, no, not the, com the composer, conductor. No. Um, he's an actor, British or an American actor who plays British character. No, he's British, but he's an American British actor. You know, he's the guy you get when you need a British guy. Right. And it would come on like as a commercial during the honeymooners at night on Channel 11 in New York. And it was always the same yeah, thing, you yeah. know. Or at movie time or something like that. But yeah. no, I, I, you know, not liking a specific classical composer doesn't mean much. So, no. okay. Should we talk about next tracks? Because I've actually got a next track that's germane to this. Okay. But just, it's just funny. I just want to go back and review. It's like, if you just got through this podcast episode, you've realized <laughs> the variety of things that we just talked about off the cuff. So I rest my case. And that's only music because the reviewer also put in parentheses and books, philosophy, equipment, format, style, etc. Oh, me? Well, let's check, let's check those off by all means. It'd <laughs> <laughs> take a few more hours. So my next track, are you ready for this? I'm going to pick this up and show it to you. It is a vinyl record. 
Oh it my, is the it first. Is. is that a musical heritage society? Music no, this is a record? Deutsche gramophone. No, it. It's the first oh. recording of a piece of music by John Cage that I ever bought. I bought this record when I was about twenty. It is his string quartet, which is later known as the first string quartet. And on the B side, it is string quartet by Vital Dudasovsky. I had been interested in Cage because of his ideas. And I said, I got to listen to music. And I don't know, I went to Sam Goody's in New York and I looked around and I found this and I like the cover. I'll link to it on Apple Music where the same album is available, but with a couple of extra tracks. This is about 45 minutes, this album, and they've added a Pendreski and a something else on Apple Music to make it over an hour. I like the cover and I thought it was cool. And, you know, the Deutsche Gramophone records, they're very... They got all these liner notes on the back, and they look really serious. And so if you don't know any of John Cage's music, this is not the best example of his music. If I'm not mistaken, this was written around 1949. It's before he started using chance operations in his music with Music for Changes. Most of the melodies in this are the different instruments of string quartet playing in unison which is very strange for a string quartet. You're used to that sort of bouncing back and forth. And it's more like chords, just in unison. It's just like they're playing a chord for a second or two, and then another one, and another one. And it's, it's just, but it's a, it's a tantalizing string quartet. Again, it's not typical John Cage later with the chance operations, but it's, it's a very approachable piece of music. Okay, Doug, I hope you have something appropriate. Well, it's not inappropriate. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about Jack Bruce, the late British bass player, of course, big part of Cream, and had a lengthy solo career, although not a lot of people are really aware of his solo career. I mean, I think for a lot of people, he just kind of fell off the planet after, after Cream broke up. But he put out three solo albums pretty quickly after, uh, after the Cream thing. None of which were very good. The third one, in fact, didn't even chart. But the third solo album that came out in 71 called Harmony Row, Jack Bruce himself said this was his favorite solo album. Now, after this album, he went on a hiatus for a while, didn't record anything until he met up with Leslie West and, and Corky Lang and did some hard blues sort of stuff for a few years. But his early solo stuff really tries to find a place between what Cream was doing and what he and Peter Brown were doing with their songs. And sort of, uh, I wonder where I'm going to go next feel. And this album is actually kind of interesting. It's It could be avant-garde. It could be some rock and roll. It's got jazz rock in it, progressive. It's, it's a very interesting record. There are only two other musicians on the album. Chris Spedding, who is the guy that you got to play guitar for you back then when you wanted a guitar player. And John Marshall. Uh, both of these guys, as far as I know, are still around. I happen to know for a fact John Marshall is playing in the uh, current iteration of uh, Soft Machine with our buddy uh, Theo Travis. Very interesting record, though. Uh, Bruce handles the basses and the vocals and the piano and all the cellos and the harmonica and stuff. And like I said, just Chris Spedding and John Marshall doing other stuff. Not bad. Unusual record. And I, I found it very interesting. Of course, as a result, after listening to this, all I get now is West Bruce and Lang music on Apple Music, but that's another story. This album by Jack Bruce is called Harmony Row, and it's my next track. This was episode number 189 of The Next Track. Thank you very much for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget, you can support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. 
We're ad-free and we're self-sustaining, so it's your support that what keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.